Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am John Nigerian, the host of Compound Interests. And it was a great conversation that I had with Dr. Zachary Carabell. Very impressive guy. Been a friend of mine for close to 20 years now that we've been doing television together. And you'll see his writings in Slate, in Time Magazine, in Wired. Uh, the gentleman has written, I think, 10 books. And his most recent book is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and The American Way of Power. Uh, and I think it's a great read. Um, I'm just getting finished with it now, but he also reads it aloud if you're a person like me that likes Audible. So please give the podcast a listen. Let us know how you like it with a five-star review. And now my conversation with Dr. Zachary Carabell. Thank you, Nigerian. <laughs> um, it is great to have you back. We were both just reminiscing folks about how long it's been since we were each in the studio together. Um, Zach is featured across financial media. Um, I'm sure depending on when you tune in, you've probably seen Zach uh, pontificating as we all do. Uh, but Zach has a little different angle on it because this is a, a guy who oversaw the creation and launch and the marketing of several funds. Um, so he's not just uh, somebody who occasionally trades. This is a guy that uh, when he was the president of Fred Alger and company uh, was overseeing you know, some pretty significant investments. And I'm delighted that we're able to talk right now, Zach, and very much looking forward to coming back to New York and seeing you out there. It's, a, it's, it's beginning to emerge from its 14-month uh, enforced slumber. So yeah. it's, feeling, it's feeling a little more lively, which is good. It should. Yeah. I think, I think you know, reports, reports of the, uh, the death of New York are well overstated at this point. Um, <laughs> it, will be, it will be a different city on the other side of it without 70 million tourists for a little while, although it's the first time many of us have been able to go to a museum and, and not have to battle seas of crowds, which I know is probably not good for those museums bottom line, but it's been a real pleasure to kind of enjoy a little bit of the city without the same level of uh, clutter. Yeah, and it's nice to be able to walk around. Again, I'm, uh, yeah. uh, neither of us are saying, oh, thank God there's not tourists, but when you go through Times Square, uh, and uh, on an annual basis, I guess about 90 million people or so go through yep. Times Square. Um, when they're all staring up at the at the bull, uh, these giant racer boards of video and so forth, folks, it's wonderful, but it's a pain in the butt because yep. you can't get from 42nd Street up to like 48th Street anywhere near that box in Times Square um at a normal pace you're constantly moving around people and again yeah is that a uh, i'm not even a true new yorker but it, you know all the people that work in new york it kind of bothers them but it's something you have to put up with if you don't it, want it's, it it, it started go. being like the old uh yogi Berra or groucho marx line i don't know which one it was but that club is so popular nobody goes there anymore yeah and uh 
you know, we'll see what this is all like on the other side. I think it's going to be, you'll get back into the studio at the NASDAQ, but uh, you know, I think, I think there was a, a rebalancing that was going to happen pandemic or no pandemic and not all that is for the worst. Don't, don't believe every headline you read in the New York post, you know, it's no, we're not right. walking around cowering. True. Um, and, uh, I know that Seinfeld lashed out when uh, uh, a friend of mine made the comment that New York is dead and New York may have been sleeping. It will come back, uh, just as you say, because it's been slugged many times. Uh, prior to this, it was, I guess, a little bit of the uh, financial crisis, Zach, but mainly the 2001 9 11 right. Um, right. episode that, uh, you know, was so sad. And yet New York came back from that and just, you know, was better than before. And now Wicked's about to reopen on Broadway. So and, I mean, got, really, what, what, what more could one want? What more could you ask for than a recycled <laughs> Wicked? <laughs> I just want to be popular, John. I just want to be popular. Well, now, Zach, you write about politics as well as political trends, um, as well as economics. I mean, in Time magazine, and a host of periodicals, if you wouldn't mind just for a sec, because I gave the audience a very brief preview of uh, what, you know, your past, I guess not a preview, but a look at what some of the past accomplishments you've had. But if you wouldn't mind giving the audience a little bit more, that would be great because as much as they've seen you on television and heard you or read you, um, it's probably uh, something that would, I think, make them want to go out and grab this great book, Inside Money, um, which is right now on Amazon, folks. Um, you can get it right now on Amazon, $25.91, I think it is. Um, Inside Money, Zachary Carabell. But tell us a little background, Zach. So I was born a poor child, and no. Um, <laughs> I am actually sitting seven blocks from where I grew up. I grew up on the Upper West Side, and I've spent 80% of my years on the planet in a... Uh, one mile radius, which is either delightfully provincial or unbelievably pathetic. Uh, either way, it's <laughs> it's it's my life. And I was an academic, decided not to be an academic, got a PhD, moved to New York to be a writer, did a lot of day trading in the late 90s, got really bored being a writer, um, partly because of 9-11, got drawn into finance, ended up working at Fred Alger uh, in part because they lost a, a much of their investment staff and their president on 9-11 because they were on the 93rd floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center and went to work there because I was at the time dating the Fred Alger's daughter. So a little bit of nepotism, a little bit of tragedy, a little bit of skill and ended up being there for about seven or eight years, ran a small hedge fund, did a lot of CNBC with you, John, for about eight years mm -hmm. on Fast Money. Although I think the joke amongst us was I was the slow money guy and the fast money crew. And, you know, I was always the guy saying, yeah, I, you know, let's maybe, maybe take a moment there. So John's idea of a long-term trade was uh, buy on Monday, hold till Friday. And my idea of a long-term trade was, you know, buy on Friday and, and sell on the same Friday, two years later. So somewhere between those two realities lies investment wisdom. And I uh, kept writing throughout that whole time. So I've written about 12 books on a variety of subjects. 
And the latest is Inside Money. And I, I then went to work for a company called InvestNet, ran strategy for them, big financial technology, publicly traded company. And now I do a lot of my own investing and trading, um, own a few parts of a few small businesses, including a little bit of a distillery in Connecticut called Mine Hill. Um, what is it called books. again? Mine Hill Distillery. We're not distributing outside of Connecticut yet, but we will. So keep an eye out for it. All right. And then a little bit of a few bookstores in New York called Shakespeare and Company and a whole bunch of other things. So that's uh, that's 90 seconds of me. Yeah. And he left out, folks, which people rarely do, um, that he earned his Ph.D. from Harvard <laughs> and uh, that he also attended Oxford University and uh, uh, undergrad at Columbia. And uh, my daughter was actually on the wait list at Columbia. Thank God she didn't get in, Zach. Um, not, not because I, uh, I'm not besmirching Columbia. I just think they would have ground her up. She ended up going to Tulane University, having a, a great experience. A lot more fun. Yeah, a lot more fun, a great experience. And it wasn't all just grinding. But I think yeah. these days, and perhaps when you were there as well, you know, there are so many gunners um, at these Ivy League schools um, that some people look at it and say, yeah, but once you get in, you're going to get gentlemen's bees or whatever, or gentlewoman's bees um, and so forth. But I think that's uh, not really the case. I think if you're not up to that competition every day at those Ivies, uh, they can grind you up and it can be not as pleasant as if you earned your way in on the first pass rather than coming in as my daughter almost did off the wait list. I think. No, I think that's, that's absolutely true. And in fact, you know, a lot of what those top tier schools are good at doing top tier as rated, not top tier as, as necessarily the best education. Um, you know, they're very good at producing people who are very good at rule-based professions. So investment banking, lawyers, doctors, um, people who work in government. And I say that with uh, consultants, I say that with no, not an iota of pejorativeness, just observationally, those have not tended to be the places where entrepreneurial skills or creative skills, because you, you have to be rule-based to excel in those systems. And I certainly was, I mean, that was certainly part of my MO. And interestingly enough, in the Brown Brothers book, which is the one I, you know, the, the, the proximate excuse for this conversation, which I'm sure will be far more than that. They, you know, there was a period of time in the 20th century where they all went to Yale. You know, there's a whole story of the way Brown Brothers combines with Harriman in, the 19, in 1930 during the Great Depression. And it's all because they're riding a private Yale, a private rail car up to their 15th rail, Yale reunion. And amongst them was Prescott Bush, who was the father to one president, the grandfather to another. They all went to the same schools, you know, they went to Groton or they went to St. George's or they went to other private schools and then they went to Harvard and they went to Yale and they went to Princeton and they were all male and they were mostly all white and they were mostly all Protestant and, and they created a very cohesive class that you or I would not have been a part of, you know, there, there, weren't, a, not a lot, there weren't a lot of people with our backgrounds in that world in the 19, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and they made a lot of the world that we're in, but uh, you know, with all of its, it's all of its strengths and virtues. And it's just an interesting reflection on you know your story about your daughter going to an Ivy, not going to an Ivy, and in, in a weird way, we still idealize that world to some degree or aspirationally. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a world that unlocked immense potential, but it also had a lot of limitations. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm always um, taken with how many of the hundreds of people, and I wonder what they're doing now. I'm sure they're just working from home. Um, but CNBC attracts an awful lot of Ivy League talent, um, both on air uh, in some cases and uh, the people that put together the shows, the executive producers, producers, um, assistant producers, and so forth, writers. Um, it's amazing how many of them attended uh, the Ivies. Uh, and uh, like I say, sadly, um, because of the pandemic, so many of them have had to be working remotely, just as you and I have probably, Zach, had to work remotely for the last 14, 15 months. And it, it is a, a different way of putting the news together, um, even though they don't have to be in close proximity. Nonetheless, what they used to do, folks, when Zach and I would be on the show is we might be, Zach might be somewhere in Manhattan and I might be out there as well. Um, and the, the pod of people that are putting the show together um, and saying, okay, we got Walmart's earnings today. Um, let's see, uh, Vince, you take Walmart, you get us the graphs for that. Um, Patricia, you get um, whatever was the breaking news in the EV space today. Get ready for that because Zach's going to want to talk about EVs, electrified vehicles, and so forth. Um, and they put together all these um, packages for the one-hour programs like Halftime. Then Zach and John and Pete and Josh Brown or whatever show up at the studio, get into makeup, go out and sit on the set. And then all of those people that were doing that back then that are no longer in studio, there's only like two or three people instead of like 11 or 12 that there used to be, the other eight or nine people are working remotely, Zach. And yeah. so I'm sure they're just on Zoom calls all the time setting up these shows and it's a completely different animal um, than it is when you're literally four feet from the person in the desk across from. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, like all of this has changed some of our relationship to, to screens and technology. Uh, There's a great cartoon that went around, I think probably about a month into the pandemic and it had uh, two parents talking to each other and their kids were glued to their iPads. And one of the mothers turns and says, did I say an hour of screen time? I'm sorry, I meant 10 hours of screen time. <laughs> You know, um, um, so tell us a little bit um, about this book, um, because, you know, you've got Avril Harriman um, and uh, the Harriman name is legendary uh, in finance as well as in New York history, because wasn't he a former governor as well? He was, he was. Okay. and secretary of commerce and administrator of the Marshall Plan aid. So I think for a lot of people, you know, Brown Brothers Harriman is kind of an, a familiar echo, but it's not really a familiar firm. And in many ways, that's because when all the firms that you now trade, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and JP Morgan, uh, when, when all those went public in the 80s and started uh, stopped being partnerships and started being big centers of capital, uh, Brown Brothers doesn't go public and stays a partnership. And so when I told a lot of people I was writing this book, because they start in 1800. They're one of the only, I mean, they may in fact be the only uh, financial institution of any size that's been around for 220 years. 
I mean, there may be another, but if there is, I don't know of one. Right. And, if there is, it's probably over in Europe, by the way. Right. And even then, you know, I guess the Rothschilds a bit. Uh, and I'm pretty clear in the book, like living long is not in and of itself a virtue. So the fact that they've been around a while doesn't make them worth writing a book about. Living well is. And I think in many ways, what I end up finding really instructive about the book is we've come to define the financial world in a certain way. And, and the kind of stuff we do and have done can skew toward how much more can I make? How much more quickly can I make it? Um, and then the incentive of quarterly earnings and the incentive of public companies are profit maximization. And in the financial industry, as we've seen time and again, a lot of that hinges or certainly did through 2008 through 2009 on other people's money. When you're a partnership, right? When you and John do something you know, you might get financing from people, but you also might put your own money up and there's a lot of skin in the game. Yeah. When, it, when it's your money, it changes the calculus, right? You're not gonna risk a hundred times your net worth, but if it's shareholder money and you're getting paid on your share price, it's a, just a different incentive structure. And Brown Brothers never went there. And so when I told people I was writing this, a lot of them think, well, it just stopped, it ceased to exist way back in the whenever. And, and partly that's because it just stayed a partnership and people don't realize, it has 5,000 employees, it has $2 billion in revenue, it has about $500 million in profits. If it were publicly traded, it'd probably be like the size of State Street or one of these companies, you know, 10, $15 billion, give or take. So not a behemoth, you know, not a, oh my God, systemic, but, you know, not your garden variety ho-hum story. And I think that the fact that we've come to lionize and demonize the kind of greed is good or, you know, the, the sexy Wall Street story, the Archegos, the guy who blows up. I don't, I mean, we don't lionize that, but we pay a lot of attention to it. Sure. And we kind of treat the, 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 the less sexy, but systemically more stable parts as just not that interesting. And, and in many ways, I just, that got skewed at some point. And Brown Brothers is a reminder of I think when you're dealing with money, you want some respect for those who are allocating capital to know just how destructive it can be, as well as passionate about how constructive it can be. Uh, and in the hub and spoke world, and I'll finish with this, we can keep talking about it. Okay. You know, Brown Brothers was conservative. They wouldn't have funded Elon Musk. You want someone to fund Elon Musk, but you don't want everyone trying to fund Elon Musk. So the ratio should be, I think, more conservativeness at the center and more risk on the periphery, as opposed to what you, you got in the financial world today, which is a lot of risk at the center and conservativeness on the periphery. Yeah, well, I remember Zach, and I'm sure you do too, even though you're younger than me. Um, I remember when Goldman was one of the last big partnerships to go public. Um, they had talked about it for years and most of the partners had just said, no way we're doing that. Um, we don't want to be, you know, we know what Wall Street is all about, and we know how we can be rewarded, um, and we know how we can be punished. Um, and then when they finally came public, and then the New York Stock Exchange um, came public, the Merck, the Board of Trade, the Chicago Board Option Exchange, when virtually everything on Wall Street um, de-equitized the members, the members got paid well, don't get me wrong. I mean, the members right. all got shares in the new co, in um, the NYSE, which is now the ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, which has bought the New York Stock Exchange, or 
the um, Board of Trade or the Merck or any of the other exchanges that um, either got gobbled up or went public and then got gobbled up. Um, right. That created an awful lot of uh, capital for those entities. And that was something that Brown Brothers obviously um, may have been tempted by, Zach, but they never went down that path. Um, they never right. got to the stage where they were going to, you know, put out an S1 and say, okay, even if this is confidential during the filing, which many of the companies have done lately, it's kind of odd, but, you know, many of the companies like Airbnb, I think, um, have done that just before they've come public, come out with a confidential S1 when they're basically filing to come public and Robinhood that you already named, uh, uh, probably doing the same right about now. Right. It's a different world when you have all of that capital behind you because all of a sudden you go to that 20 to one um, structure. So in other words, if you're a $10 billion firm like Zach just described uh, Brown Brothers Harriman as, and all of a sudden you're 20 times that, that's gotta be awfully tempting to some of right. those partners to do that. Right. And yet, and just I think, like Goldman, some of them are like, no, 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 no. Right. And I think Brown Brothers is unusual in that their culture basically just said, no, we're not no. going to do that. And and I, I'm i sure I'm guilty in the book because authors are always guilty of falling a little bit in love of, with their subject, right? So, so I may be guilty in the book of a degree of nostalgia that I actually don't fully feel. Um, like, I don't think we should go back to what was, mostly because I think it's impossible and also because the world gets different and more complicated. But as a lesson going forward, uh, there are two things I think are really important. One is this, be mindful. And, and again, the incentive structure on, on, on Wall Street and the financial world are the capital allocators skewed too much toward, I can make you know, an X load of money and I'm gonna do that without being aware of the fact that if you're systemically important, the risk becomes collective and the rewards are individual. And I think it's great that people get rewarded for risks they take, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I don't think it's great that those risks get offloaded onto other people in a way that, that changes the incentive structure in an unhealthy way. Uh, and the other is, look, Brown Brothers epitomizes, particularly in the 20th century, this thing we know of the establishment, that thing that you and I couldn't have been a part of, right? Because we weren't the right religion and we didn't go to necessarily the right schools and we could because we couldn't have gotten into them, by the way, not because we couldn't have gone there. Um, and that elite at least understood its responsibilities to the larger society. And I think that's absolutely vital. If you've made a lot, if you've done really well, you've got to recognize that you can only thrive long-term if the, if the collective thrives. Yeah, you can make a lot of money quickly, but you ultimately have to pay attention to the commons. And they got that. They, they actually did believe in public service. They believed in working for the good of all. And it was self-interested, right? They kind of knew that if the system ends up getting too skewed, they weren't gonna thrive. And this is where I think big tech elites today are really asleep at the wheel um, because they're just not evincing that awareness of the fact that if you get that big and that's systemically important, you actually have an obligation to address the collected goods and issues. And if you don't act on that obligation, it's gonna be acted on for you. Um, I don't think that the big tech companies are even now with every signal in the world prepared for the tsunami of regulation and, and pressure coming their way. 
I, I would tend to agree that they're not ready for that. Um, it's a fascinating read, folks. I'm talking with Zachary Carabell, Dr. Zachary Carabell, the author of Inside Money, Brown Barthers Harriman. Um, it's on Amazon right now. Um, I've loved listening to Zach read it because he does. So if you're somebody like me who consumes your um, books via Audible, because that's what I do, Zach, uh, I, I probably... I, at one time, when I was going back and forth to New York every week, Zach, I probably did close to 50 books a year um, because I could just get through them on the plane. That's great. Um, between waiting for the plane, on the plane, in the cab or whatever, I could just, you know, kind of lose myself in a book and I loved it. I'm probably doing half of that now, uh, which I don't regret. Um, I wish I could still do as much time with the books, um, but I really like the way Zach's own voice, and it's somewhat, it's my familiarity with you, Zach, but you do a great job emphasizing certain por portions of the book, uh, I thought, um, you know, so whether or not Zach ever gets up there on stage, instead of just in front of a TV camera, we'll have to see, but I thought you had a lot of artistic license with your delivery. Uh, that I, was appreciate really that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's a really interesting experience sitting in a studio for six days, reading your own book into a microphone. Yeah. And it really tests out what you feel about your own prose. And uh, I, I didn't hate it as much as I feared that I would. I didn't have as many moments of, oh my God, did I write that? Because look, there's no going back. I mean, it's by the time you're reading the audiobook, it's you're not editing anything. So it's, it's, it's baked. Um, Anyway, I, do, I, I appreciate that feedback because that's kind of a new, a new thing for me and a new thing that I've done. I'd encourage you folks, even if you like reading, to perhaps get the Audible book. Um, I, I think they have a special deal anyway. If you buy the yeah. book, you can get Audible for free or vice versa. Yeah. I think it's vice versa. I think if you, uh, whatever, I think you get the Kindle if you do the Audible. I'm not sure. So you'll have to look mm -hmm. that one up. Um, but uh, so, like I say, I knew a little about Avril Harriman. Um, and I obviously learned an awful lot more about that side of the business, the Brown Brothers and Avril Harriman. Um, but this is a guy whose dad was one of the railroad barons. Right. And, you know, other than perhaps Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, I always pronounce it that way, Zach, because that's what I heard, even though everybody says Carnegie Mellon. Um, I always heard it was Carnegie. Um, it probably was, was Carnegie yeah. in the Scottish. Yeah, he was a Scott. Yep, exactly. So it's really interesting about Ian Harriman, <laughs> which I didn't realize as much. So there are two things about Harriman. It's good that you mentioned Carnegie or Carnegie or Andrew. Mm -hmm. um, so two things animate a lot of these people that becomes kind of important for Brown Brothers that you can hear a little bit the echoes in even when Warren Buffett today. And that was when Carnegie wrote the Gospel of Wealth, where he said, anybody with a huge fortune should give it away in, in his lifetime. And in those years, it was mostly his and not hers, um, which was part of the giving pledge that a bunch of billionaires that was got attention six, seven years ago that Buffett and others signed on to. And E.H. Harriman, who is Averill's father, this plucky New Yorker drops out of school, tells his dad, I'm gonna go and make money, goes to work as a stock jobber, you know, kid handing the the, the the papers for stock trades going from desk to desk. And um, 
he ends up making money as a railroad baron. But what's interesting about that and interesting, uh, and Carnegie's unusual because he actually makes money building steel factories and selling steel. Most of the people who invest in the late 19th century railroads in that first wave lose all their money. Most of those rail lines go bankrupt, just like most of that initial wave of investment in fiber optics that be, make telecom, you know, basically make our internet revolution possible. All the investment in that in the 90s, most of the shareholders who invest in that go bust. Remember WorldCom, right? was the big so E.H. Harriman makes money not building the initial lines. He makes money buying the initial lines when they go bankrupt. So he basically buys them up for pennies on the dollar and refurbishes them. And I, and I found that interesting because, it, again, it should be a lesson for investors today who are thematic, that even when you find the right theme, like, oh, my God, electric vehicles, you know, they're going to change the world or um, artificial intelligence. It's the wave of the future. And you're probably right. Those probably are the wave of the future. Uh, and maybe Tesla will you know, make it oodles of money as it's made oodles of money for its shareholders, although it hasn't made it oodles of money actually selling cars yet. Uh, it's just to be mindful of the fact that a lot of the people who invest in the first wave of these things lose everything. Uh, and that that investment capital is highly speculative. It builds out an industry, but it doesn't make the people who do it first any money. The people who make the money are often the financiers and the bankers who come in and buy up worthless paper or bonds on the you know pennies to par. And that was E.H. Harriman. So he builds this massive empire and is also the subject back to you know uh, tech elites today of the most significant antitrust act, most significant antitrust enforcement act in American history other than uh, Standard Oil and AT&T where they break up the Northern Trust railroad combo um, because it just owns too many things. And it's like TR, Teddy Roosevelt showing he's going to be tough on the trust. Um, and then his son inherits a lot of money and becomes this kind of exemplar of noblesse oblige in a way that we've now forgotten. Uh, he was also very famous because he was you know, very social. He married Pamela Churchill very late in life, Pamela Digby, who becomes um, Pamela Harriman, one of the doyens of, of Georgetown social circuit in the later part of the 20th century. But he's also a bit of a glyph. You know, he's kind of a cipher. He's like the opposite of you. He's not, <laughs> he's not garrulous. He's not out there. He doesn't wear his personality on his sleeve. You know, he, he wears tailored suits and uh, it would have been hard to get much out of him. You know, not the best interview, kind of blood from a stone or water from a stone. And that was, that was the MO of that establishment. Tight-lipped, they did their duty, they did their service. They were probably more interesting after a bunch of martinis in a private club. Although maybe they weren't, you know, it's, it's, you'd like to believe that they might have been, maybe not. Well, it, it, I'm sure that you would uh, agree that anybody who's been a member of Skull and Bones usually has a few bones in their closet, a few skeletons right. in their closet. Sometimes when those come out, when I've been uh, out with friends of mine that, of course, would never admit to being in Skull and Bones, um, nonetheless, when you're out with them, you do uh, only really hear any of the stories uh, when they are pretty uh, uh, inebriated. <laughs> you know, and for Harriman, by the way, and so Harriman lives this incredible life. He's called the plenipotentiary. I mean, he's, he's described as this kind of roving, larger-than-life figure. He serves FDR. 
uh, as FDR's emissary to Stalin at the Yalta Conference, ambassador to Moscow. He becomes Secretary of Commerce under Truman. He administers the entire Marshall Plan aid to Western Europe. He then, as you said, become, becomes governor of New York. And then he is the overseer of American East Asian policy as we get involved in Vietnam under Kennedy and Johnson, which was not his crowning moment. And yet for all of that, and he is the heir to what would now be a, a, a multi-billion dollar fortune, several marriages, uh, good social life. He, at, toward the end of his life, describes the crowning moment of his life being selected for Skull and Bones at Yale, the Skull and Bones Secret Society at Yale as a Yale junior. Um, and, uh, sorry, as a, as a senior. And, and he, like that was his, that was his moment. That was his crowning moment as, as a junior uh, being selected for a senior society. Hmm. Um, it is absolutely amazing. And you already touched on uh, Standard Oil being another one of those um, monopolies. Uh, that was broken up along with AT&T by the government. Um, but to, uh, for, for him then to get together with the Brown brothers um, in this firm, Brown Brothers Harriman, tell us about how that happened. Because there has to be a lot of ego involved. Yeah, so like 1929, they're both, uh, Harriman has his own investment firm with his father's money. And the Browns have been around since the early 19th century and, and were like one of the oldest, even then, institutions on Wall Street as, as a small partnership that, that had been present at every important thing in the 19th century. They, they fund the B&O Railroad, you know, Monopoly B&O Railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio, which is the first passenger and freight railroad powered by a steam engine in, in the United States and almost in the world, except for one small line in, uh, in Northern England. Uh, they fund the first transatlantic steamers. They are the epicenter of the cotton trade, which meant they were deeply involved with slavery, even though they were pro-Republican, pro-Union, they still benefited mightily from the cotton trade. Uh, and in 1929, these both these thriving firms cannot withstand the collapse going on all around them as the depression starts to uh, unravel the economy. And they are literally going to their 15th Yale reunion, the younger partners, Prescott Bush, Robert Lovett, who was very important in all this as well, and Harriman, and they decide, it was Harriman's brother who was part of this somewhat younger cohort, Roland Harriman, who in true Wasp fashion had a nickname his whole life called Bunny. They called him Bunny Harriman. <laughs> Maybe because he liked rabbits, we're not entirely sure. And um, and they said, look, we need we should combine forces. We've known each other. We've been friends for ten years. And Brown Brothers had too many commitments and not quite enough capital. And uh, and Harriman had enough capital, but also a lot of business deals that had gone wrong. So they decide to join forces. And look, mergers often lead to. I mean, you know this from everything you look about it. Two flailing companies merging does not make for a successful company. It just makes for a slightly larger flailing company. But in this case, they were, they were sound franchises in a desperate time and the combo worked. So like Harriman money infused into Brown Brothers business saved both of them and led to a, a much more stable institution. The irony, and you're gonna love this story, John, which will spoil a little bit of the ending for you. All right. Glass-Steagall happens. And what happens in Glass-Steagall? What does Glass-Steagall demand? Um, well, uh, number one, let me see. In Glass-Steagall, the investment banking they, and commercial they, banking they separate out 
investment right. banks. Um, and ultimately that gets brought back into one under right. uh, Sandy really Weil with Sandy yeah. pushing it so hard. So it begins with Glass-Steagall where they have to separate and they actually get to choose. You get to choose like, who are you going to be? You're going to be a commercial bank or an investment bank. And Brown Brothers, because more of their business was in commercial banking, decides we're going to be a commercial bank and we're going to spin off our investment bank. That investment bank gets called Harriman Ripley. In the middle of the 60s, Harriman Ripley merges with an old Philadelphia investment bank, also spun off from Morgan, called Drexel. And it becomes Harriman Drexel. A couple of years later, it gets bought by Firestone. Firestone doesn't know what to do with it. They spin it off. And it gets merged with another guy from Philadelphia named Tubby Burnham and becomes Drexel Burnham. And then they add Lambert in the mid 70s. And who does Drexel Burnham Lambert hire in the late 70s? Um, would it be a gentleman who would ultimately be the, the, the center of the Predator's ball? Exactly the one, Michael Milken. So it's truly ironic. And people use that word. In this case, it's it's totally apropos that the like the bastard stepchild of Brown Brothers Harriman because of Glass-Steagall ends up being Drexel Burnham Lambert, which is the antithesis of what Brown Brothers Harriman is. They are everything I talked about at the beginning. They are what Wall Street in part became. Um, and look, I mean, I know Milken, he's gotten, a, I think, somewhat of a bad rap in the sense of what he did was perfectly legal and, you know, like it or not, he he funded businesses no one else was funding. He made Steve Wynn's career possible and, and basically all of modern Vegas and what it's become is a function of the junk bond industry. I mean, imagine, John, what your conference business would be if, if be Milton terrible. and Steve Wynn, it'd be terrible. I mean, you'd have to go to Orlando. Um, so, you know, but it's really interesting how that happened um, as a kind of life cycle question. And it's like, you know, forgive them father for they know it, not what they do. Like your kids do things you don't quite expect. And in this case, the, 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 the descendants of Brown Brothers Harriman in the form of Drexel Burnham become a completely different institution. And, and you've done a great job wrapping that story around, um, but to, to unpack it just a little bit, as you said, the Brown Brothers, when they first started and funded the B&O Railroad and the first steamships and things like that, um, that was cutting edge. Right. I mean, that, it's not exactly Tesla, uh, but nonetheless, uh, when you're going to a steam powered locomotive or a ship, uh, that's a big change that was you know, a pretty big gamble for them at the time. And they got more conservative, obviously, as they moved along. Um, and to your point, they, you know, it became the firm became a little more uh, of a stable rather than that periphery. Yeah, just show show me something to throw money at, right. sort of uh, investment bank. That some are out there doing that exact same thing right now. Um, and but, you know, they even when they funded these kind of what you're right would have been innovative speculative ventures at the time, a steamship, a steam engine. They never like bet the farm. So they are always, the risks they take and the exposure that they allow is always within the bounds of what they could manage. And then they got other partnerships and other people to ride along with them, as opposed to what you talked about earlier, you know, the hundred to one leverage. 
Right. So, and there were plenty of people taking on leverage in the 19th century through wild, these, these frontier banks that would print their own paper and basically say, this is money. Um, and they were called wildcat banks. And, you know, it worked until it worked. And then when it fell apart, it fell apart really spectacularly. So it's not like the 19th century didn't have its own incredibly volatile waves of speculation. It's just Brown Brothers didn't, didn't play in that particular, didn't swim in that particular pool. And tell the listeners and viewers um, how far you follow this story. Um, it's not just about turn of the century with this, you know, son of a railroad baron and, you know, some Yale classmates putting this thing together. How far did you follow it from? So look, in the middle of the 20th century, it's not just Harriman, it's a bunch of Brown Brothers partners who become part of what, you know, we know as the establishment, this sort of close cohort of often Ivy educated, uh, often intermarried, often the same religion, who really do play an it disproportionate role in shaping what Henry Luce, the founding of editor of Time Magazine called the American century. That period of time after 1945, really into the later part of the 20th century, where the United States just had preponderant power. The United States still has massive power, don't get me wrong, but it, it's, its relative power in those years was, was far greater than it is today. Um, yes, there was the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union was never an economic competitor. It was barely uh, a military competitor the way we feared. Um, and it certainly was an ideological competitor. And they shape the world we're in, right? They, they write, Robert Lovett, partner of Brown Brothers, goes in, becomes undersecretary of state to George Marshall. George Marshall, who was the chief of staff of the US Army during World War II and then becomes secretary of state under Truman. Um, they write the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which is the precursor to the World Trade Organization. So this kind of world of free trade that we live in today um, that is hugely contentious, but it is nonetheless the world we live in today, whether, you, whether it's contentious or not, they help create that world. They, you know, I'm not saying just the Brown brothers, their class, their cohort, they established the Department of Defense as a consolidated thing. Robert Lovett is one of the progenitors of the modern Air Force. He almost single-handedly creates the B-29 bomber, the superfortress that drops the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as all the strategic bombing on Germany. And, uh, and then of course, Prescott Bush, you know, you want to know where the Bush family fortune came from. It came from Harriman's money and Brown Brothers Harriman where Prescott was a partner. That's an important aspect of who we are today. That, that post-war establishment shapes the world. And then the sixties and seventies, you know, are the generation kind of you grew up in reacts against that world, you know, that they were treated as that's the group that got us into Vietnam. That's the group that ignored racial segregation. That's the group that, you know, worship the dollar and what about social justice? Um, so it, it, these things kind of have ebbed and flowed throughout American history. There are periods of time when we lionize the captains of industry and capital and then there are times when we demonize them. And, uh, you know, Brown Brothers reputation went up and down and up and down depending on where that particular cultural bouncing ball was. Now, uh, where would, Brown Brothers be today in an ESG world? Um, That's a really good question, John. I think oh, how about because that? they do a lot of clearing and custody and the kind of not so sexy but necessary parts of the financial space. Mm -hmm. um, they'd probably be pretty high on the environmental because there's very little that they do or even fund. 
you know, a lot of what they fund is trading foreign currencies or settlement of ADRs, you know, American depository receipts of foreign companies that trade on US exchanges. Um, they do some asset management. All of these things are kind of light touch environmentally. On the governance part, you know, probably if they were a public company, they would have some pressure to diversify their ranks more than they need to diversify them because they're private. Um, not sure where they'd be on the social part. And, you know, ESG is much more effective against public companies than it uh, is a much more effective uh, pressure point for public companies than it is for private companies. Well, and uh, I know that uh, uh, Dr. Carabell has uh, just finished an interview with Anthony Scaramucci and uh, with our friends over at Bloomberg as well. So uh, I'm thinking, Zach, this book, um, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman, American Way of Power uh, and the American Way of Power is going to be a, a, a pretty widely uh, read book uh, amongst Wall Street, certainly. But for anybody who really wants that history of, again, a railroad baron um, whose then son goes and uh, the United States has just purchased Russia, right? uh, not Russia, Alaska from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't purchase Russia, but Harriman, Harriman would have liked to. If, if oh, they had yeah. been selling, he would have been buying. Uh, I mean, uh, Trump tried to buy Greenland last year. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, when Russia sold off Alaska, um, the Harrimans are the ones that financed an expedition up there for scientific purposes and so forth. And then bring along John Muir, you know, Muir Woods, the, the, the great conservationist, American conservationist, hugely important in the, the national park movement, all of it. And, and Harriman's like, who do I, who's gonna, who would I want to go with me to Alaska and show me around, but the most esteemed naturalist of the day. It's a little like uh, uh, Indian billionaires um, having, uh, um, who do they have come and, and, and sing? Beyonce, right? To paying for Beyonce yeah. to come sing at, sing at the wedding was <laughs> the equivalent of a VA chairman having John, John Muir accompany them on an Alaska expedition. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so funny. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like in uh, any of the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, genre where uh, all of a sudden some really rich guys in tailored suits that you say, uh, Mr. Harriman favored show up uh, to Dr. Indiana Jones's office and say, "Here's we want to fund you to go out and look right. for this." Right. It's <laughs> exactly it's like that. Just like it's that. It's total patronage networks. Life. Total patronage networks. Absolutely true. And exactly. and it's it's a delightful stories. I can't wait to uh, finish the book. I have not finished it yet, but I can't wait to finish it. I spoiled the ending for you. I hope nah, that's all right. Mind. That's all right. I'm, I'm no, 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 no. I'm pretending I didn't hear that. Um, but it is a great read, folks. Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power uh, by my friend, Dr. Zachary Carabell. Make sure you pick it up. Um, and if you do have a chance, listen to him read it because it really comes alive. Zach, thank, thank you, you for joining me today, my friend. Thank you, John and Jaren. You rock and you roll. You rock and you roll. And I look forward to seeing you in New York soon. Thanks, Zach. Drinks. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.